You can turn your Bibles tonight to Joshua chapter 24. Joshua chapter 24 this evening. I wanted to do something a little bit different, something that I wasn't actually technically planning earlier in the week. uh, But I was, for some reason, this passage came to my mind again and I wanted to sort of touch on it a little bit. Because I think it has a lot to say to us. Uh, Maybe perhaps um, that doesn't just jump out to us at first, but I think it also has a lot to say to us as, you know, we're entering into a new year, new, new things are happening, and, uh, you know, sort of as we spoke to this morning, just the idea of making resolutions, and I think this is a good one also to, uh, a good passage to come to if you're talking about resolutions. Uh, tonight I want to talk to you a few minutes uh, about families. You know, the Bible has a lot to say about your family, uh, has a lot to say about families in general, so to speak, and our roles in them, what relationships we play as, as sons and daughters, as, as husbands and wives, and as parents, as children, as grandparents, uh, has a lot to say about those roles uh, and each of those roles. And, and we were created for these relationships. You know, I think about that. That we were created for these relationships as brothers and sisters and parents and children and siblings. We were created for them. Even though you may not like your family, you may not like where God has put them or where God has put you with them. But God has put you right where he wants you with your family. That's a kind of a hard thing to come to grips with, especially if you come from a broken family. I've the last several uh, months and whatnot, it's been a little bit uneasy in some parts of my family. And that's hard to, to deal with. It's hard to reckon with at times. Perhaps even yours is a little bit more uh, broken than mine, perhaps. But it, it, talking about family can be difficult. It may bring up bad memories. It may bring up repressed feelings or feelings of regret or feelings of guilt or feelings of of struggle and suffering and, and grief. Some of you have amazing families. All of them love God. All of them come from godly homes, godly backgrounds, and everyone goes to church. And it's a it's a quote unquote amazing family, picture perfect family. Others of us come from. Broken families with messy backgrounds and hurting homes and messy breakups and childhoods. I think the important thing to remember, though, is that there are no perfect families. As much as, you know, a family could look perfect, Instagram lies. (laughs) Have you ever seen those pictures on social media or perhaps when you're scrolling through and it's like, how do they always look so perfect? You see that family, and they're always like posed and dressed, and all everyone's prim and proper and nice. And the thing I think of, especially uh, having two kids trying to take those types of pictures, is how long it took them to get that picture to make that Instagram post. Probably a really long time. <laughs> but you don't see all the 61 pictures of them trying to ra- corral all their kids together to get this perfect pose. You only see the one 60-second picture. That looks absolutely perfect. But then we just see that perfect one, and it's, it's hard to see that. But families can be amazing and messy at the same time. 
And I think that's the thing to recognize. Again, there's no perfect families, but they can be messy and beautiful and amazing all at the same time. And God has a lot to say about families, but has a lot to say through families as well. Regardless of outside circumstances, God loves families. And they are the primary way to show the power and the grace of the gospel is through families, through the ministry of the home. I think it might surprise you, I'm going to get to my text, I promise, but it might surprise you to learn that there are probably more examples in your Bibles of bad families than there are of good families. If you read the Old Testament, you know this to be true. Read Genesis, and you know this to be very apparent. (laughs) Genesis is really a book that's just filled with bad families. Maybe See if you can guess which family this is. Brothers dig a really big pit, and they throw their youngest brother in it, and they sell him as a slave, and they trick their dad into thinking that he's dead. (laughs) Joseph. That doesn't sound like a good family situation. Or how about this? Brothers... A brother tricks his dying dad that he's actually his older brother in order to get his older brother's blessing. And it starts a literal family war between them. Jacob and Esau. (laughs) A literal war in which Esau had an army of people and in which Jacob feared and ran for his life and hid for his life. Doesn't sound like uh, brotherly love. Or how about this? A dad is threatened by his son's best friend and throws a spear at the friend trying to pin him to the wall and instead hunts him for the rest of his life. Saul, David, and Jonathan. That picture is so fascinating to me that Jonathan and David are best friends and Jonathan's dad tries to pin David to the wall with a spear. And this is the messed up Family life that we get in the, in the Bible. This brokenness. This messiness. The Bible is full of that stuff. It's full of just dark dysfunctional family stories. But I think the cool thing is. Is that number one it never hides that. And you notice that it never tries to like cover up. All that darkness and dysfunction. It puts it out front and center. <laughs> Here's this messed up family. But yes, look at what God does through that mess up, messed up family. You know, remember, I think it's Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6 where it's talking about how you're, where they were, the people of Israel will charge with teach your children in these ways. Teach them of, of the love of God with heart and soul and mind and, and speak it and teach it unto generation after generation. It's not just talking about teaching the good things. It's talking about teaching all of the bad things too. Don't forget where you have fallen and failed. Teach that to your children too. This isn't my text. But if you look at Psalm 78. Or no. uh, Yeah. Let me double check myself. (laughs) It's either Psalm 78 or Psalm 72. Um. Hold on one second. Yeah, I think it's Psalm 78. 
Yeah, it's Psalm 78, but you don't have to read it now. Just mark it down. Psalm 78 is a really fascinating psalm because that's exactly what Asaph does there. He is basically telling the people of Israel, hey, listen up. I have a lesson to teach you. And the whole entire lesson is a lesson about Israel's failures and God's faithfulness through it all. He's telling them, teaching them, and he's saying... uh, Remember how good your God is? Remember all the things that he did for you? Remember how he brought you out here and he provided for you there? And he never left you even though you constantly were forsaking him? Asaph does that in Psalm 78. And it's fascinating to me because that's what he's uh, he's trying to get at. Is that from generation to generation, even our grandkids, we want them to know this story. And what is the story about? The story is about their, their ancestors' failures as well as their successes. Now this is, you're going you're gonna to probably like smirk at me and be like, what? It reminds me, you're going to smirk, but it's okay. It reminds me of a quote from Star Wars. Now before you laugh, listen to the quote because I think it's fascinating. So you don't have to know who says this because you probably don't care and that's fine. But in the movie Star Wars, one of the characters says this. Pass on what you have learned, strength, mastery, but weakness and folly and failure also. Yes, failure, most of all, the greatest teacher failure is. That comes from Star Wars, but I think it's a really true statement. You want to teach your kids? Yes, teach them how you have succeeded and the things you've been able to learn. But where do you learn the most things? It's through failure. He's saying, pass that on too. Don't forsake passing on your failure to the next generation. Asaph does that in Psalm 78. And I think Joshua does the same thing in Joshua 24 here. And I think what he does is he gives them this lesson and he gives them a challenge, the people of Israel here. And it shows them, and he's trying to incite them to think, what is my purpose? Not only in my family, but what is my purpose for my family? And I think the lesson here in Joshua 24 shows us that. It shows us what God can do through families, and it can show us what God can do through us as members of a family. So Joshua 24 Verse 1, Joshua, of course, is the leader of Israel at this point. He's coming to the end of his life. He, is, no, he knows that he's dying. And he stands here and he gives this final message from God to his people. I'm going to read all, or not all, I'm going to read the first 14 verses for you. And then we'll make some comments, so to speak. But in here, this is sort of the bulk of his message. He's surveying Israel's history. You'll notice that. And he's reminding how God used them and how God was merciful to them at every turn. Look at what he says. Joshua 24, 1. And Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and called for the elders of Israel and for their heads and for their judges and for their officers. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said unto all the people, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel. Notice It's a message from God, straight from God's mouth. This isn't something Joshua has made up. It's a message from God. Notice what he says. Your fathers dwelt on the other side of the flood in old time. Even Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nacor. 
and they served other gods. And I took your father Abraham from the other side of the flood. I want you to notice in, your, in the back of your mind while I'm reading. Notice how many times the phrase I and then did something. Like a verb. Like I did this. Notice it because I think it will be important. But he says, and I took your father Abraham from the other side of the flood. And led, them, or led him throughout all the land of Canaan. And multiplied his seed and gave him Isaac. And I gave unto Isaac Jacob and Esau. And I gave unto Esau Mount Seir to possess it. But Jacob and his children went down into Egypt. I sent Moses also and Aaron. And I plagued Egypt according to that which I did among them. And afterwards I brought you out. And I brought your fathers out of Egypt. And ye came unto the sea. And the Egyptians pursued after your fathers with chariots and horsemen unto the Red Sea. And when they cried unto the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and brought the sea upon them and covered them. And your eyes have seen what I have done in Egypt. And ye dwelt in the wilderness a long season. And I brought you into the land of the Amorites, which dwelt on the other side of Jordan. And they fought with you. And I gave them into your hand that ye might possess their land. And I destroyed them from before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, the king of Moab, arose and warred against Israel and sent and called Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not hearken unto Balaam. Therefore, he blessed you still. So I delivered you out of his hand. And ye went over Jordan and came unto Jericho, and the men of Jericho fought against you, the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I delivered them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drave them out from before you, even the two kings of the Amorites, but not with thy sword nor with thy bow. And I have given you a land... For which ye did not labor, and cities which ye built not, and ye dwell in them of the vineyards and olive yards which ye planted not, do ye eat. Now therefore, fear the Lord, and serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the flood, and in Egypt, and serve ye the Lord. What a fascinating passage. What a fascinating sermon that Joshua is delivering to these people. He's, he recounts it all the way back from uh, Abraham all the way to where they are now. He's, what is his point? His point, hey, at this time, throw off all of these strange gods which you have come to serve and serve ye the Lord, he says. And what's his basis for doing that? Well, did you notice how many times he said in that sermon, uh, well, it's a sermon from the Lord, the words, I brought, or I did this, I did that. I love in, in verse 7 where he says, and your eyes have seen what I have done, what God has done. Your eyes have seen the very doings and deeds of the Lord. Or in verse 8, I love it where it says, um, and I destroyed them from before you. God's hand was delivering them, was eradicating their enemies from right before their very eyes. Just like I love how it says, uh, I think it's verse, yeah, verse 12, where it talks about uh, the insane way that God drove out their enemies. He says, not with your sword. It wasn't with your bows and arrows. It's, it's the first couple words of the verse. It was, I sent hornets. <laughs> you didn't do it. 
It wasn't your abilities. It wasn't your strength. It wasn't your might because you're such a mighty army. It was God. God, I did this. I sent the hornet and drove them out. And I love the verse prior, verse 11. You know, whenever Bible verses like this kind of come up, it's hard to see the point. Why does he repeat all these people? He's, Joshua is showing them just how, how stacked the odds were against them. <laughs> all of these people, these countries were against you. And what is the summation of it all? I delivered them into your hand. That it didn't matter who came up against you. It didn't matter who was going to be on the other side opposing you as an enemy. As an enemy army trying to get you to get out of the land and get away from what I have promised you. I delivered them into your hand every single time. This is what God did for them. This is what God did for Israel. I think it's an amazing story and it contrasts constantly the Israelites' unstableness, their unsteadiness. Because we know the history. You're familiar with sort of, even just if you're not familiar with every detail, you're familiar with sort of the overarching picture of Israelites wandering through the wilderness, right? They say they're going to serve God and they have this revival and then they fall away and then they fall away again and then they have this terrible time of punishment and then they come back and they repent to God. It's that constant wavering back and forth. And what is the constant through it all? God is doing these things. God is working in their lives. I love verse 13. He says, I have given you a land for which you did not labor and cities which you did not build. And now you're being able, liberated, freed to enjoy them, to live in them. Joshua, God, through the mouth of Joshua, is emphasizing what? (laughs) That God does it all. He is sufficient and he is sovereign. At every single turn, God was protecting and preserving and providing and persisting for his people, his family. At every turn. He was always trying to show them that he would never forsake them. That he would never forget them. And we have to step back and ask the question. As he comes to his conclusion, serve ye the Lord. Will God not do the same for you and your family? Will God not do the same thing? That he will provide, that he will protect, that he will persist for you, for your family, even where they are right now. We have to say that he will. Because we can see it in Israel's past. And it's there to show us this, that God's mercy and patience with messed up families is all the proof you will ever need that he will be patient and merciful with you. Again, think about all the times that Israel said, Oh Lord, we will worship you, and we really mean it this time. (laughs) We really, really mean it when we say that we repent. But then look, because he moves, and Joshua sort of draws a line in the sand, so to speak. 
in the next verse. Look at what he says in verse 15. And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom ye will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He's drawing a line, so to speak. He's presented all of the facts, we could say. And he's saying, uh, uh, I presented you my case. <laughs> he's sort of coming to the end of an argument in sort of like a law room. He's saying, I've come to the end. Here's my closing argument. Here's what it is. Serve the Lord. And it doesn't really matter what you do. Because as for me and my house, as for me and my family, we're going to serve this God, this Jehovah God who has done all of these things. And we have seen it. We have witnessed it. He's encouraging these people here to do the same thing. Notice what they do. Look at verse 24. And the people said unto Joshua, the Lord our God, we will we serve. And his voice will we obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and set them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. So here they, again, they, they appear to be confronted with this message and they say, yes, you're right. So they set up this agreement here, this statute and ordinance in this ordinance that really defined their relationship with God. And they were saying here, we are aligning ourselves as God's family and the family of God. We are aligning ourselves with this God, our Father Jehovah, in opposition to all these strange gods that are around them. Look at the verses just prior, because this wasn't just something trivial or trifling that they were entering into. It was something serious. Look at what happens. Look at verse 21. And the people said unto Joshua, Nay, but we will serve the Lord. And Joshua said unto the people, Ye are witnesses against yourselves that ye have chosen you the Lord to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. Now therefore put away, said he, that is Joshua, the strange gods which are among you, and incline your heart unto the Lord God of Israel. You see what he's doing? He's underscoring the idea, Hey, This isn't just a simple thing. This isn't just a trivial thing. This is a significant decision. You are serving God, living for God with your life. And they said, we are witnesses. We will bind ourselves to this covenant and ordinance. What Joshua's challenge is, I think, a challenge to us. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Maybe you have that on like a little plaque or something in your house. You've never really referenced it other than that. Oh, that looks cool. I remember seeing it in my mom and dad's house all the time, but I never really took it to heart. It was in this like little gold, little metal plaque thing that had that verse on it. But I think about that. Think about it in your own life. Is that true for you? Is that true for your family? Maybe you are the only Christian in your family. You're the outsider. You're the outcast. You're the weird guy who goes to church every Sunday. You're the guy who reads his Bible. (laughs) 
Or maybe you're the only nuclear family, so to speak, in the midst of all of your relatives. Or the only nuclear Christian family, I should say, in the midst of all your relatives. Aunts and uncles and brothers and sisters in your family, they aren't aren't Christians. They don't care about God and his word and Jesus. The line in the dirt, so to speak, has already been drawn by Joshua. Who will you serve? Who is going to be the ruler of your house? Joshua said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Can you say the same? Who will you serve? Who will get your time and your talents and your energy and your effort? You know where I think most people see this? Is when, and I'm not, I'm not trying to harp on people, so don't take this the wrong way. But when parents take their kids to sports games on Sundays. Who is ruling their house? And maybe there's a special case. And I'm not trying to say it's always that way. But there's a lot of, lot of things that happen on Sundays that we often don't think about. We have to say, who is ruling that house? Is it the Lord or is it someone or something else? I think <clears throat> this is Joshua's challenge to us. Who are we going to serve? What if your family started drifting away from God? Would you draw this line? If you saw them making decision after decision, and you saw them making choice after choice that doesn't align with what God's word says, would you draw this line in the sand, so to speak? Hey, you're making a bad choice. We are going to serve the Lord. It stops right here. I have to say that I don't know if I have enough gumption to do that. I want to. I want to say that I have that. And I'm preaching to myself. How would I stand? How would I stand if I were confronted with that scenario? And I think it's important. It's important for me, you know, as an almost 30 year old, it's important for our young ones too to teach them that, right? How you stand for Jesus right now is how you will stand for Jesus later on. So as, you know, maybe you have uh, kids in elementary school, high school, or whatever. Teach them this. Because how they stand for Jesus right now is how they'll stand for Jesus later on. Are they serving the Lord right now? Standing for Jesus makes you a picture of God's love in the world. This is a picture of God's love. Joshua is saying that we know that this Jehovah, he loves us and has promised all of these things to us. And we are aligning ourselves with this God of glory and grace and love and sovereignty and majesty. We are aligning ourselves with him. And we're saying no to everything else that's around us. You know that in that verse where, where Joshua calls them to cast off the strange gods. How often do we have to do the same thing? The strange things that come up and distract us, that rule us. But aligning ourselves with this God aligns us with the only one who can save us and our families. It aligns us with this God who can do amazing things, amazing marvels in and through the worst sorts of families. 
That's the message I get out of the Old Testament. That God is in the business of redeeming lost people. And yes, that includes lost families. Think about Jesus' family. If you want to see a messed up family tree, look at Matthew chapter 1. Because it goes all the way down to Jesus, but read all the names that are in Jesus' family line. You're going to see a messed up family. Scandal, strife, struggle, infidelity. All riddled in through there. And what comes out of it? The Savior, Christ Jesus the Lord. The one who would save his people from their sins. God is in the business of redeeming lost people and, yes, lost families. I think that's what the Bible shows. That he can transform these sort of messy families and transform them into testimonies of his grace and power. So Joshua's challenge is a challenge for all of us, I think. It's a challenge to me. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Is that true for me? You have to ask yourself the same thing. Is it really true for me that we will serve the Lord? No matter what, come what may, regardless of the consequences, regardless what people may say about us, we will serve the Lord. We will serve this God who redeems us, who guides us, who provides for us, who protects us. And this is what I love because we have this type of God who's with us. We have a God who sees you, who sees your situation, who cares about you. And guess what? He's your father. See, the the beautiful picture here is that for me and my house, we will serve the Lord is an entrance into the family of God. If you know Jesus here tonight, you know the Heavenly Father who has brought you into His family. Who has brought you, adopted you, grafted you in, as Paul might say in Romans chapter 9 and 10, into His family. We are all one now because of Christ. We are all part of the family of God. And that's a really good place to be. You know why? Because one of my favorite writers, he writes it this way. He says, every step of the way, we are accompanied by a God who, in Jesus Christ, will never unlove us, unadopt us, or unredeem us. (laughs) Because he can't. Because we are in Christ. He can't unadopt us. (laughs) We are adopted. We are in Christ. Was another writer, he says it this way, God's love is an unyielding love. It will never relinquish what it has once adopted. That message, this unadoptable, or you can't be unadopted, that type of love, I think is the love that Joshua is speaking to. It's a love that was shown to God's family all throughout their wilderness wandering. And that's where it leads Joshua to say, will you serve that type of God? And I think we have to ask the same question. Will we serve that type of God? Who says to us, you cannot be unadopted. You cannot be unredeemed. If you are mine, you are mine forever. As he says in Matthew, I think it's 10, uh, 28. No one can pluck you out of my hand. 
You cannot be snatched out of God's, our Heavenly Father's hands. We are in His family forever. So I ask you the same question that Joshua asked. uh, We have the same challenge before us. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Will you? Will that be your sort of mission statement, so to speak, for your household? I pray that it is for me and mine. That regardless what friends may come and go, what family members even may come and go, we will serve the Lord. That we may lose really close friends. I won't ask you if you've lost really close friends once you became a Christian, because I would hasten to say you probably did. Or maybe you've lost friends over the years as you've struggled and striven to stay faithful to God and they've veered off into some other, some other path of life. Will you serve this God? This God who can never unadopt us because he loves us with an unyielding love. Who guides us with his all gracious hand. This God who will never let us go. Because we are part of his family. Will you serve him? Let us pray.